The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Living Well with Ann Beal. Our show is a health show, a lifestyle show, and an empowerment show rolled into one. Get ready to hear some stories of success, healthy living tips, and suggestions to get motivated and live your best life. Now, here is your host, Ann Beal. Welcome to Living Well and the spectacular show we are going to have today. Wow, the intro talking about living a life of, of success and empowerment, and the guest we have today so embodies that. And I'm very excited to have a former top intelligence officer for the government, for George Bush, that worked with Colin Powell, here to tell us today why we don't need to be afraid during this holiday season. He wants you to just relax and enjoy the season, enjoy your families, and don't let the media scare you to death. And so Carl Ford Jr. is our guest today, and he is the former head of the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research under Colin Powell, and he served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Near East and Asian Affairs and was formerly with the CIA. Welcome, Carl. Well, and it's very nice to be here. Thank you. Did I get that right? <laughs> uh, right enough. <laughs> right enough. There's probably so much more. Sounded good to me. That's all. <laughs> well, and I know the last thing you did was the assistant secretary of state, and that was actually because Colin Powell's secretary of state, so you were the assistant secretary of state, right? <laughs> Correct. Correct. So, what, <clears throat> so, you know, you were actually born in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I found that out yesterday. I sure was. I'm I'm an Arkansas boy. I, I, I know this uh, that you're down there in Dallas or someplace in Texas. So I hope that you don't hold that against me. Uh, but uh, no, uh, I uh, uh, have lived uh, in Hot Springs until I was went to college, and then uh, after I retired, I came back. Yeah, but you know what? People think when they think of Arkansas, they don't think. Of course, you know what? Bill Clinton's from Arkansas. Right. That's right. And so, and you are from Hot Springs. Um, <clears throat> he, he same elementary school, and uh, I, I don't have any recollection. He was a little bit younger than I was, and I may have pushed him down on the playground or something. And but uh, he, he went to the same Baptist church as my family, and my mom and dad and my sister knew him. But uh, I was always just a step ahead, and and never really connected with with the president. So your family went to Emmanuel Baptist uh, Park Place. Oh, Park Place, yeah. Because, you know, I don't know if you know, I grew up in Little Rock. Oh, okay. So, you know, uh, my family went to Emmanuel Baptist. Um, Well, that is so exciting because I think a lot of people, when you hear what you do, it's very intimidating, all the things that you've done, and they don't realize you can start. Um, Now, you had told me that you started college, went a couple years, and then decided that wasn't for you and joined the military, right? 
correct. I, you know, I, I came from a, a working class family with middle class uh, ambitions and, and values, and, and uh, uh, I simply, uh, without the help of a very generous uh, aunt and uncle who lived in Florida, uh, I would never even got to go to the first two years of college. I didn't have enough money, and uh, they let they actually adopted me, and uh, I went and lived in their home, and then went to school at Florida State University in Tallahassee, and uh, 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 it, it, it was uh, just by luck that I actually got that far. But uh, yes, I, after two years, I I decided that uh, uh, I had uh, not accomplished what I wanted to. I was not doing real well, uh, and uh, uh, I, I decided that I wanted to go in the Army, and it changed my life. I mean, from that point on, uh, things looked up, and I was very, uh, I look back on that decision as being one of the most important I, I made in my life. Well, the Army must have worked for your personality type. I mean, what would you say was it about you that made it fit so well with the Army? You know, I I had grown up uh, in uh, listening to uncles and and uh, cousins talk about World War II and Korea, uh, and uh, I very much had from the as, as long as I can remember, I sort of wanted to be in the army, uh, and uh, it, it was something that I felt like. Uh, uh, People in, in Arkansas who they did, you know, they served their country, <laughs> and uh, I found it, it, it uh, a way of, of, of moving up, uh, uh, getting out of uh, the uh, small town uh, working class environment, and, and becoming uh, a world traveler. And, and you know, it, it, it was just something that uh, I, I I loved to do and found that I was good at. So uh, it was a good decision for me. And you moved right up in the Army, didn't you? Uh, I'm sorry? You moved right up the chain of command in the Army. Is that how it worked? Well, you know, I, I was a, an enlisted man. I started off as a private. And uh, because of my two years in college, I was uh, eligible to try out for officer candidate school. So I, uh, after uh, uh, I'd been in the Army a while, I applied and was accepted to OCS. And uh, I went to infantry OCS at Fort Benning and uh, became a second lieutenant. And uh, that really was uh, uh, another very important uh, uh, juncture in my career, becoming going from an enlisted man to, to a young officer. And uh, uh, the... I stayed in the Army 10 years total. Uh, I had uh, four... Uh, four four to five years as an infantry officer, um, and after a tour in Vietnam, I came back and went back to school and finished. Got my bachelor's at Florida State in Asian Studies and, and, and a master's in East Asian Studies, and it turned out that uh, the best job I could get after that was uh, uh, to go back into the Army. And so, But I transferred, branch transferred from infantry to military intelligence, and uh, uh, then went back to Vietnam again, and, and uh, uh, the 
the best assignment out of Vietnam was one of those sort of dream assignments for me because in college I had been a an Asian specialist, uh, particularly on China, and I uh, taken Chinese language. I was never very good at it, but I took it, or it took me. And uh, so all of a sudden, I found I was sitting in a desk in Washington D.C. Uh, in the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, as an analyst on the Chinese military. And uh, I had uh, people around me that had been doing it for years and proved to be uh, great mentors. Uh, they were more than willing to pass on their experiences and their skills. And those, my, my three or half, four years at DIA uh, was one of those formative periods as an analyst where I I soaked up everything I could from the people who had been there, done that before. Uh, uh, the, uh, the lady that uh, was the head of the section had actually been following the Chinese army since World War II uh, in North China, and then moved into when they moved into Korea. She so she she had been doing it for 20 years, 25 years before I ever met her, uh, and. Uh, uh, so, uh, but in, in any event, I, I did well at that uh, because I like to do it, and uh, I had decided to stay in the army full time and, and got a applied for regular army commission and got one. I'd been a reserve officer from out of both CS, and uh, we were always in a constant bickering. Uh, we were always bickering with CIA over one thing or another. We had different views about the Chinese military than they did, and. Uh, uh, we were uh, constantly at each other's throats. And I was surprised one day when the CIA folks called and said they'd like me uh, to come over and work for them. And I, I assumed at the time that it might be they just wanted to, to get a, a burr under, out from under their saddle, you know, bring me into the fold so I wouldn't be as, as dangerous as I was outside. But in any event, I, uh, after much soul-searching with my wife, who was working at, uh, in the District of Columbia as a school teacher and loved what she was doing, didn't want to move around with a, with a soldier so much, uh, we decided to make the leap from being a military officer to going to CIA. And uh, I, I did about the same thing at CIA uh, that I did at DIA. That is, I studied the Chinese military. And uh, it was uh, an opportunity of, to do uh, what I would call, what I call detailed basic research of, of asking questions and trying to ferret out what was happening in the Chinese military, how fast it was modernizing, what was it doing, uh, was it any good or not? You know, very very uh, long term type questions that required, uh, in fact, more than often we would do it as a team rather than as an individual. It's just too much to try to do for one person. Uh, but uh, at some point, I, the, I found out that I had been recommended by CIA to be a congressional fellow. And uh, it's a mid-career program that the Defense Department, State Department, CIA, and uh, have that they send officers down to uh, the Congress for a year uh, so that they can sort of learn how the legislative branch works. And it starts off with about, uh, I don't know, uh, three months of academic work at John Hopkins in D.C. <clears throat> and then uh, there's a person there, there was a person there who knew everything about the Congress and, and all the people there and helped us 
uh, work out a plan on honing in on who we might work for. And so we would go up, uh, we were supposed to work six months on the Senate side and six months on the House side. And, and I uh, started off on the Senate side and ended up with uh, working for Senator John Glenn from Ohio. Uh, he at the time was the chairman of the East Asia Subcommittee. So it was a great fit for me and I think for him that I had a lot of Asia background and that's what his his focus was in the Senate and the Foreign Relations Committee. And uh, uh, about five and a half months in, he, he came to me. He didn't ask. He just came to me and said, Carl, I've talked to the director of CIA, and he's agreed that you can stay with me for a whole year. So I never, in the Congressional Fellowship Program, I never went to the House of Representatives. I just stayed in the Senate for a year. And it turned out that at the end of the year, uh, he didn't want me to go then. And so I left CIA and joined uh, Senator Glenn's staff on the Foreign Relations Committee and uh, worked with uh, Senator Glenn and other senators on the Foreign Relations Committee uh, on things about China, about Japan and Asia, uh, and would take uh, Senator Glenn and uh, other senators on trips and, and various things. So it was, a, uh, it was an opportunity for me to, one, broaden my experience, but also meet a lot of people. You know, Glenn is, is a national hero. And everywhere he goes, uh, there are people who want to meet him, and, and he has all kinds of contacts and friends. Well, as as the guy carrying the satchel walking beside him, I I, I got to know, uh, learn a lot from him. I also got to meet a lot of people, and so uh, it was uh, uh, he really was responsible for everything else, everything that happened in my career after that. Without that opportunity to grow under his his uh, tutorship and without his pushing me to be more than just a China specialist and uh, the contacts that I made through having the job for him, uh, I, you know, I would have gone back to CIA, and 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 that would have been the end of it. I would have been an analyst, and and would have been happy and retired at CIA. But uh, he opened up a door uh, for more experiences that I had never imagined as a as a well, growing up. I never imagined, for example, I'd work on a presidential campaign and go around to the uh, the. Uh, uh, various uh, 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 debates and be there to uh, uh, to prep the senator and hear uh, sit in the audience and listen to the debate as it, it, as it unfolded. And, uh, I, you know, those, those are things a kid from Arkansas just doesn't imagine ever doing. And, uh, but, but at some point, uh, he, he knew and I knew that uh, I'd reached the point where I was ready for something bigger. And uh, some of the contacts I'd made called and said, do you want to come back to CIA? And I said, well, doing what? <laughs> and they said, well, we want you to be the national intelligence officer for East Asia. And Glenn recognized, I certainly recognized that was the promotion for me. And so I left the Foreign Relations Committee and rejoined the CIA. I, I had formally cut ties with them before, but I rejoined them again. And uh, 
then we were responsible with the National Intelligence Council for doing national estimates. And my focus was on China and North Korea, uh, particularly. Uh, but that uh, we, we uh, did all kinds of of. Uh, estimating and uh, dealing with uh, long-range predictions, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, after a certain period of time, I was I got a call from the Pentagon, and uh, it was a change of administrations, and they needed somebody to come down temporarily, they said, uh, and sit in the seat until they could appoint someone to take over the uh, ISA, International Security Affairs, at the Pentagon. Uh, the, the, the group of sort of the State Department that works directly for the Secretary of Defense. And so, uh, sure, I, I was happy to go down for a few months. Turned out that it, it, it ended up being four years. I didn't leave CIA. I was always a CIA officer. I got paid by them, uh, uh, and uh, it counted everything for retirement, of course. Uh, but I was working for Secretary uh, Cheney. Uh, and uh, uh, he was, uh, uh, and I, I must say, he, he was a much different uh, boss for, uh, at defense than he seemed to be as vice president. I, I, uh, there have been a lot of people that noticed that he's changed. He seemed to be changed person from when we met him because he was the greatest, organized, most organized person I've ever been around and uh, really knew how to get the most out of people and knew how to build and to work large bureaucracies. I mean, he was a master at it. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my my four years there. And, and uh, having worked both Asia and the Middle East by the time I left, I I knew virtually every military senior leader uh, in both areas. And so I set up a little consulting company and, and started working for companies like Boeing and Lockheed Martin and uh, and others, uh, really trying to find out what was going on in these uh, the various militaries, why they weren't buying their products usually. And, and, you know, what, was it, what did they have to do uh, to sell their products? And fortunately, my... my you know, the counterparts when I was at defense were more successful than I was. And, uh, for example, one became the uh, Minister of Defense in Korea. And so every time I could go to Korea, I could actually just go to the top and ask him, well, why aren't you buying the F-16s? And uh, uh, he would always uh, be kind enough to say, well, here's the reason, or here's what they need to do. Uh, and uh, same way in Japan, uh, my uh, counterpart was turned out to be a, a very important person in the Japanese uh, Defense Agency and uh, gave me great uh, access there. And Taiwan, uh, I'd worked on the Foreign Relations Committee as the uh, Taiwan Relations Act, so I had contact there. I really kind of uh, enjoyed myself, uh, made a little bit more money than I did in government, but I was traveling to Asia about and East and Middle East. I was averaging about 12 to 13, 14 trips a year. And those are long trips. And uh, I, I worked on that for eight years during the Clinton administration. And then uh, Secretary Powell called and wanted to know if I would like to come back into government. And uh, as you can imagine, I said, oh, you bet. And, and uh, joined him and his staff. Uh, uh, he was building uh, before 9-11. 
and uh, it was then an opportunity to work through that very critical and important period of 9-11, the Iraq War, and all the uh, things that happened during that period of time. So it was, uh, it was an amazing time and a great opportunity, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, hard work, partly, but a lot of luck <laughs> and some very good mentors along the way. Uh, and uh, a boy from Arkansas uh, surprised even himself. <laughs> but uh, that uh, maybe I went on too long. But that's that's sort of the, the gist of my, my career. Now, you worked with Colin Powell two and a half years right before, well, and up to the Iraq War, 9-11 and then the Iraq War. And I, and That's I, correct. I, I was there before 9-11 and uh, worked through 9-11 with him and then through the Iraq War with him. And that was a um, fascinating time. You had actually said that it's the best job you ever had, working for well, Colin part of that, Well, a part of that was because the agency that I, uh, that I was the head of, uh, the, uh, the Intelligence and Research Bureau at State Department, I had uh, some of the smartest, some of the most capable people that you could ever work with. And uh, they, their great uh, strength was that State Department and INR let them stay to be experts on their region for lengthy periods of time. They didn't have to move around. They didn't have to do different kinds of assignments. They could be a uh, German expert or a Japanese expert or Al Qaeda expert for their whole career if they wanted to. Now they could do other things if they chose, but uh, it was really the only place in the intelligence community where you had a, a band of very experienced, capable people who had knew their regions uh, much better than most anybody else in the intelligence community because they'd been there, they'd been doing it longer, and uh, they were up against people that had been there maybe three or four years, and they'd been there fifteen. You know, and there's a lot of things that you learn just through uh, experience uh, working in, in the intelligence. Well, and you were a part of the controversy about the Iraq War. Um, and I, I know, like you talked about the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And you weren't, when you were working with Colin Powell, you weren't with the CIA, right? Uh, no, I, I had I had uh, retired from CIA, and uh, when I left uh, the the Pentagon, I I, I I was a CIA officer there, and I decided to retire early and open up my consulting firm. But um, so when I went back, I worked uh, directly for. I became a State Department officer. I, I was not right. uh, attached to anybody else. And that's your frustration mostly came from the CIA during the Iraq War, right? Well, uh, yes and no. I, uh, it was CIA and DI. The oh. intelligence community is huge, uh, and there are many components of it. And uh, INR is one of the components uh, that's part of the uh, this is CIA, DIA, INR, NSA are, are sort of the top intelligence agencies. But NSA and DIA and uh, uh, CIA dwarf INR in size. I mean, they have thousands and thousands of people, and INR is relatively small. 
And so uh, we are, uh, and I know they were uh, uh, a current reporting operation that helped support the foreign policy of the Secretary of State and uh, also would, did a daily a brief that was uh, um, popular throughout the intelligence community for its, uh, how well written it was, et cetera. And uh, so... We were listened to when people wanted to, <laughs> but we were the little guy. And when BIA and CIA teamed up and said, no, this is the way it is, uh, it was hard for uh, politicians, it was hard for uh, senior officials to say, well, wait a minute, they've got thousands of people there, and, and Carl's only got a few hundred. How, how, why am I going to go with him rather than go with these other two agencies? And so that when it came time to decide on the issue, a very critical issue of uh, whether or not uh, Saddam had restarted his nuclear weapons program, uh, my analyst had a far different view of what was happening than CIA and DIA. Uh, and we were uh, afforded the opportunity to tell people. Uh, we told the Congress, uh, we told the President, we told everybody else that we uh, we had uh, real concerns about what CIA and DIA were saying. Uh, but in the end, uh, people decided to go with the big dogs. Well, and, I think uh, it- I, and I can't really blame them for that. You know, I, I, that I don't know what I would have done in their place, but uh, I, I certainly know that uh, from my experience as an intelligence officer, uh, they were misled badly by two of the most important intelligence agencies and uh, that they were directly responsible for much of the problems that occurred after that. And so uh, I I really blame the intelligence community for causing much of the problems during that period. So you believe, and that's what I think is interesting when I read the books, was that you clearly said that it it was bad intelligence that was informing Colin Powell and George Bush and Dick Cheney. Um, and that was even informing, bad intelligence was informing the head of CIA, George Tenet, right? Correct. Right. Well, people were saying that the, 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 the key intelligence issue uh, that, that drove the Iraq War was the nuclear weapons program. Uh, for 10 years... Uh, after the Gulf War, the intelligence community had been saying that their program had stopped. Uh, the feeling was that they might restart it at some point, but it, it, there was no signs that it was really uh, moving along at any any uh, major uh, developments. And so that it, there was little concern, watched very closely, but there was still not very much happening there in Iraq, or, or so we thought. And after 9-11, based on very little information, uh, some of it turning out to be uh, totally wrong, uh, we changed our mind. The intelligence committee changed its mind and said, oh, well, they've restarted their nuclear weapons program. Now, this was before anybody had ever thought about going into Iraq. Uh, this was simply after 9-11, uh, and all the fear and concern that everybody had, uh, it impacted the intelligence community as well. And they 
lowered the bar in terms of evidence, I think, uh, for making judgments. And they said uh, that they'd restarted the program. My analysts uh, were convinced that that was wrong, that there was, they had not done that. And that, that, from my perspective as a supervisor, was that DI and CI had not nearly enough information to make such an important judgment. Uh, it just wasn't there. They were uh, they were putting things together that didn't need to be put together, and uh, it, it was uh, we were constantly overruled because we were the small guy. Now after the war. Uh, it turns out my guys were right. <laughs> my guys yeah. were girls. Uh, and uh, that CIA and DA were wrong. Uh, and that not only had they made mistakes in analysis, but there had been uh, uh, things done that were not professional that had been key determinants of what the president and the vice president, the secretary of defense, secretary of state used to decide whether they were going to go into Iraq or not. And so that uh, without the intelligence community sort of throwing out the notion that they'd restarted their nuclear weapons program, it's hard for me to believe that that the war could have happened, uh, how you could have persuaded the Congress and the American people to go uh, against Iraq just because they were bad guys. It was a fear of the nuclear weapons in the hands of terrorists that really drove people to be fearful of what might happen in Iraq. But there weren't any. Uh, well, and, and I, I and think the Joseph that, Clinton should have known it. Well, and I think that Sorry. when you think about 9-11 and the extreme reactions to 9-11 and the fears, you know, they're kind of similar now with ISIS. I mean, I mean, it, ISIS hasn't blown up buildings or anything like that, but the Al-Qaeda fears, when you, you know, if you think of the way people feel about Putin and trying to convince us that Putin doesn't have nuclear weapons or whatever, and you, and you can think about the way they felt about, I mean, it sounds like the, the community just got, the intelligence community went way extreme the other direction and was not doing what things the way they normally had done it before or as detailed as they'd done it before. It's almost like they were all just scared and reacting to fear. Well, and I, I, I think to, that's really, that, that's, that's certainly part of it. And they weren't really uh, very logical and rational, but you guys seem to stay logical and rational, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because when we talk about the fears that a lot of people have watching the news about Al-Qaeda and all that, you guys are very grounded. You've been very grounded, and you were right. And so and you're a Middle East specialist. And so for us to hear you talk to us about now, which we'll do in the, in the last segment, um, really is comforting. And so we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we want to talk more about your views on today and um, and some of your, your things that would help us be able to relax more and enjoy the holiday season. Is that okay? Happy to. Okay. We'll be right back with Living Well. Thank you, Anne. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. 
Life Solutions Coaching and Counseling in Fort Worth, Texas is a full-service wellness clinic providing individual, group, and family counseling, one-on-one coaching for life and wellness, and naturopathic treatments of medical massage therapy combined with essential oils to ensure you reach your health and wellness goals. Sessions are available in person or by phone. Get started on your new life today. Just call 817-232-1363 or go to lifesolutionscoachingandcounseling.com or email them at lifesolutionscc at yahoo.com. We're all living in the moment, but you never know when life is going to take a unique turn. It doesn't have to be a challenge, but perhaps more of a detour to get where we need to be. On The Sky's the Limit, host Karen Levitt knows that experience, having faced it herself. Learn about her journey from a life-changing event to where she is now. Her guests are amazing people who are living these experiences and overcoming obstacles. Learn from their stories every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Living Well with Ann Beal. We'd love to hear from you with comments and questions about the show. Please send us an email to ablivingwell at gmail.com. That's ablivingwell at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. We have our surprise guest today continuing about why we just need to relax over the holiday season and just enjoy our families and not worry about all the fears that the news throws at us um, and that it's just sensationalism to keep us watching so they do keep us afraid. And we have Carlford Jr., the uh, former Assistant Secretary of State of Intelligence, the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, with Colin, who worked with Kellen Powell. Um, here to, um, and he's been talking to us a lot about the past 15, 20 years um, in intelligence and where we are today with uh, Al-Qaeda. And we were just talking about the Iraq war and the miscommunication, uh, bad intelligence coming from the CIA and the DIA that influenced George Bush and um, Colin Powell and all of them to go into Iraq, but Carl Ford Jr. and his is that the INR the intelligence? What's the INR? Uh, intelligence and research. Intelligence and research. Um, you guys consulted them to not go in, and that they didn't have because it sounded like when you told me all the things you told me the last few days, it sounded like a lot of circumstantial evidence, no real clear true, um, detailed research and actually fact-finding that, you know, they used to do to actually make sure that all their rumors and information were true. Instead, they were going on a lot of rumor and fears with some circumstantial evidence. Is that right? Yes. I think, I'd like to correct, though, that that I didn't tell them that shouldn't go into Iraq. Oh, you did uh, our my my agency and many of my analysts believe that. In fact, I had one analyst who, out of conscious, left the government because of, of Iraq. But uh, what we were saying was that they have not restarted their nuclear weapons program. 
all of this, these things that you're hearing about weapons of mass destruction is greatly exaggerated, uh, and that before you act, you better take that into consideration. Uh, there are uh, there's there's not nearly enough uh, evidence to suggest what CIA and DIA are telling you. That that's basically where we were at. Yeah, because he he did have the biological weapons already. The um and and the uh, bacterial weapons and things like that. I mean, they knew he had other weapons. They just didn't think he had mass destruction weapons earlier, right? Well, and it turned out we we thought that they they had kept their chemical and their biological uh, programs at a very low level, and that they might even have uh, chemical warheads and and. Uh, possibly biological warheads, uh, but it turns out they didn't have any of that. Uh, that they, after the Gulf War, uh, Saddam decided that because of all the pressure on Iraq from the rest of the world, that he was going to have to stop for a moment uh, because he never gave up his ambition to have the nuclear weapons mass destruction. But he was smart enough to realize that he w- was going to have to stop, so he did. And he stopped everything. But he didn't and tell anybody. We, that. <laughs> and, uh, and we didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he he was acting like he had a lot of things. And I think that one of the things you said, that Colin Powell said to you when you gave him your opinion, which was, different than what the CIA and the DIA were telling him, which were, again, thousands of analysts telling him they did have weapons of mass destruction. And you guys were saying, no. Um, Colin Powell said, well, if that's true, why doesn't Saddam Hussein tell us that? You know, and he wasn't telling you guys that. He was making it sound like he did have them, right? Yeah, and there there was uh, for for Saddam uh, admitting that he had buckled under to the pressure from the Americans and to the West in general was some and given up uh, his deterrent of nuclear weapons and chemical and biological uh, was could have caused his military and intelligence folks uh, or could have prompted a coup. Uh, and he knew that that many people might be upset about what he'd done. Uh, he also had to worry about uh, Israel and us. Uh, he, he was uh, wanting to keep up at least uh, the facade of a deterrent uh, without actually having to have the programs. And right. so uh, uh, admitting it to us uh, was something that uh, uh, was a very difficult thing for, for him to do. But uh, Powell, uh, Colin Powell was uh, uh, a person of high integrity, and, and I greatly respect him. And he always was asked, INR, what do you think? And he gave us an opportunity to tell him what we think, thought, and why we agreed or disagreed with other agencies. Uh, and and I, I always respected that. That I, I knew that we could go and say, "Well, that's." We could go, get right to him and say, "No, watch out, boss. That's that's not right." But uh, when it came to this, uh, it was such a big decision. And everybody was so adamant on the other side uh, that it was very difficult, I think. Uh, I certainly don't hold it against him of not uh, accepting INR's view. Uh, he asked for it. We gave it to him. He looked at it very carefully. 
and George Tenet and CIA convinced him we were wrong. <laughs> and and, I, I, and uh, that really changed his life, didn't it? I mean, I think that you can tell he's different now, and I, I would think that for him, that's part of that being the four-star general and being Secretary of State, having to make those kinds of decisions when you're sending in Americans to fight and you're, you know, you're heading up such a huge war effort. I think that it had to have wounded him immensely that the intelligence was wrong. And uh, I mean, more than that, right? I don't even know how you can compare, but I do think it had to have changed him, you know, because he would, he trusted, you know, the intelligence. And I, I, it seems like most people, when we see, like, you know, most of us, we see James Bond and we think, you know, the intelligence community has all these agents all over the world and they know everything. And they would, you know, they would know if Saddam Hussein was just full of, you know, <laughs> junk and just making it look like that. They would know that. I think as Americans, we think we know everything because we have these agents everywhere. When you think about the intelligence community, we don't realize there's so much we we really don't know, and there's a lot of guessing. And so um, when we do make mistakes, I mean, it can be a really horrible thing. And I, I, um, I'm glad to have your perspective on that about what really happened, because there are some books out there that just look like, and I told you, it looks like MSNBC wrote the book. It's just like all the talking points you hear, um, depending on which political person is talking. And so, um, and the slant. And so it's so good to hit your perspective. Now, now you teach at, well, you, I know you were teaching at George Mason University, um, and you were teaching at, is it? At Georgetown. Georgetown. And the executive branch decision-making classes, right? Correct. And then you were also teaching on intelligence and weapons of mass destruction. Correct. Now, I, I did executive ma- uh, decision-making, uh, executive branch decision-making at, at uh, uh, Georgetown and a graduate seminar. And then a graduate seminar at uh, uh, George Mason, uh, I taught a, a course on uh, national intelligence. Well, and I think most people don't understand how the executive branch, branch makes decisions, you know, and I, I think having a professor like you would be incredible, especially learning about the intelligence side, just everything. And I know now you're actually teaching classes in Hot Springs, right? Correct, and and uh, very much enjoying it. Uh, I work at National Park College uh, and teach political science to uh, freshmen and sophomore kids. And it's wonderful. Are you there? Is it wonderful? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> you like it? You like working with these kids, don't you? Oh, sure. I mean, they 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 come from the same sort of backgrounds that, that I did, and and uh, I I really feel like I'm giving back, you know, helping if I can, uh, and uh, a lot of these uh, students don't have all the advantages that others have, and uh, so being able to help them uh, gives me great great pleasure. Well, can you tell us a little bit, if you bring it to today and we we talk about Al-Qaeda, I know one of the things you said to me about terrorism is that we really don't need to be afraid. Well, I... I think that we all we, obviously we have to be concerned about uh, terrorism as a, a worldwide problem, and we have to be concerned about ISIL, ISIS, uh, Dash, whatever you want to call it, uh, and the remnants of Al Qaeda, the few people out there that still are messing around. Uh, 
but I, I think that we have to keep that in perspective uh, and uh, understand what the threat is and how best to deal with that threat. Uh, I, I start with looking at what does ISIL want us to do? What they, they have written down their strategy, for example. And one of the major goals of, of ISIL is to convince uh, the, uh, the West, the U.S., Europe, uh, to become more anti-Muslim. It's not to form a caliphate. Uh, it's not to take over the world. It's to get the United States and others to be anti-Islamic. And the reason is because that gives them a broader recruiting base. It gives them a broader uh, base to raise money. Uh, and so for them, that's their goal. They want us to be terrified. That's what terror is all about. So when you are terrified, you're letting them win. You're walking right into what they're trying to get you to do. So uh, I, I think we as Americans have to keep in perspective how, how that dangerous that threat is. I mean, World War II and the greatest generation, uh, that, that was a real threat. The Cold War was a real threat. But ISIL uh, is, is a threat, but not something that we have to go to bed at night worrying about. Uh, the fact is uh, that 45 people have been killed since 9-11 and by terrorists in the United States, so about 45. And uh, we don't get into our car every day uh, and drive off to the grocery store worrying about drunk drivers uh, or uh, speeders. We just get in and we drive. We know there's a risk. We know there's a danger. Uh, we know that it's not completely safe, uh, but we don't obsess about it. Uh, we drive carefully. Uh, we follow the rules. We watch out for other people, and they're not following the rules. So uh, we have people that, far more people that die of cancer and various other illnesses. Uh, all of these problems, in, in my mind, are things that, that we should, we worry, that cause more problems or more serious problems than isolates. So we have to keep it in perspective. Uh, FBI says, uh, if you see anything, tell, uh, say, see, say. Uh, and I think that's, that's a good, good advice. But the fact is that, that, uh, uh, the chances of an American citizen being killed by a terrorist is probably somewhere on the order of winning the Arkansas and Georgia lottery <laughs> on the same weekend. Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> it's possible but very remote. And when we are terrified, we're letting them win. And I, I think we just have to be able to stand up and, 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 and say as Americans, we're not going to change our system. We're not going to let this band of thugs make us do things that we, that we as Americans don't believe in. And we're going to deal with you guys. You have made the biggest mistake in the world of messing around with us and France and Germany and Saudi Arabia and various other people. Now, because remember, the problem of terrorism is much greater for people in the Middle East. I mean, they're the ones that have to face it every day. Watch on TV and look at what's happened in Syria. Whole 
cities have been decimated. The people are streaming out of Syria because they're, they're, they're so afraid. Now, they have to worry and obsess about terrorism. I, that's something very real. But for us, we need to be resolved. We need to be determined. But we don't need to be terrified. And when we do, uh, we, we simply are, are, are walking into the, to the trap of doing exactly what they want us to do. Now, I, I also feel when, when someone tells you that they can keep you safe, I, my own view is that they either are terribly misleading you or they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, the fact is that we have very good police, FBI, intelligence community, but guess what? Those people are human. They have to work within the, the bounds of what's possible. Uh, what, when someone says they can keep you safe, they're basically saying, uh, in effect, we can, before there is a kidnapping, we can stop it. Before there is a bank robbery, we can stop it. Before there is a drunk driver, we can stop it. So, those are things that happen that's part of life. Uh, and we can guard against it, but we can't just simply believe that there's some magic formula that will keep us safe. Uh, we have to be vigilant, but uh, but don't ruin your Christmas. Don't, don't, ruin, don't ruin your, your Christmas. new year. Worry yeah, about and, this stuff. And I think that um, one of the things that you said that made me feel good after talking to you was that, you know, Al-Qaeda is not big enough. They're just not big enough for our country. They can't. They're, they're small. And, um, you know, like when you're talking about Russia and China and some real threats, you know, that we've had in the past. Even now, they're bigger, that, that uh, al-Qaeda is not and ISIS is not. And part of their reason, uh, wanting us to be anti-Muslim or anti-Islam or what, anti-Islam would be uh, to recruit over there in other countries. They're worried about, they want to recruit over there. And you were saying, like, you know, changing, they want to change Saudi Arabia. They want to change Jordan, Assyria, Iraq. They want to change people, places like that. And uh, we don't need to change our policies because somebody has a, um, a bomb in their tennis shoe or a bomb in their underwear. <laughs> and then we don't need to be afraid because of California that change in policies for such small things. Um, no, no more than we have to be afraid when we get on an airplane. Uh, and it, we, we always know that when we get on a plane, it could crash. We see them occasionally on TV, and, and, and it's a danger. But that doesn't stop us from flying. Uh, and uh, this little band of thugs ought not to be able to stop us being, being Americans and who are strong, uh, believe in liberty and freedom, uh, and uh, have uh, the, the people. The, this group can't win. It can cause all kinds of problems, but it can't win. Uh, the only way, uh, and as you said, is that if it can get Jordan to fall, if it can get uh, Syria and Iraq to fall. Uh, they're more concerned about the Arab uh, Muslim world than they are us. Uh, but if you want to get support, you talk about this terrible monster, the United States. Uh, 
uh, and uh, that they are against Islam. They're not against us. They're not against our atrocities. They are against our religion. Well, that's that's not true, and we ought not to let them get away with that. Uh, we simply shouldn't let our freedoms be used against us uh, in a way that helps the terrorist. I, I, I just well enough. Uh, I, my own sense is that that this is something that we are going to have to live with. But remember, it's not the threat that. Uh, people are talking about that you shouldn't be afraid to go out closing the schools in Los Angeles, for example, over uh, an email. Uh, that was a victory for ISIL. Wow. Right. Boy, you, you, can you imagine what they were talking about last night in, in Syria and how many backslaps uh, and various other things? They had nothing to do with that, okay? I, 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 I would bet money they had nothing to do with it. But they're going to take credit for it and take great, great pleasure because we jumped when they pulled our string. And uh, I, I, I think we're better than that. Uh, we faced Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. We faced the Soviet Union. We can certainly face this little dinky band of thugs called ISIL. Uh, right. I mean, Hitler I, killed, killed millions. I mean, Hitler millions, not hundreds. You know. Um, and so yeah. when you when you think about that, but the media has taken it to a whole new level with this twenty four seven media coverage. I mean, California, as you said, was on all day long, nonstop on CNN, MS. It was just on and on and on. And they just throw it at us, and they need fear to keep us watching. So they terrify us to keep us watching. If it was boring and it was peaceful and it was calm and enjoyable, people would turn it off and go live their lives and then come back and turn it on. But they don't want you to do that. They want you to watch all the time. And they and you're not going to do that unless you're terrified. Well, and they certainly promote the fear yeah. uh, by the, the round-the-clock coverage and exaggerating, in my mind, uh, the actual threat. Uh, there, there was probably somewhere in America on that day uh, that there could have been a, a horrendous car crash uh, that killed 14 people, uh, that three cars and a, and a tractor trailer. Uh, we wouldn't even hear about that. Right. Uh, that's more. That, that's what is more serious. That those are things that happen more often and more uh, are more dangerous than worrying about a few terrorists that may slip into the United States. You've got good FBI, you've got good police, they're looking, uh, and they're going to catch most of them. But they're not going to be able to guarantee you that they'll catch every one of them. And just like they can't guarantee you that they can stop every kidnapping before it occurs. Oh, we're human. We yeah. have tools that work very well, but we cannot read people's minds. We cannot, uh, people do things at the spur of the moment. Uh, even if we've been watching them, uh, well, they can I, do things so quickly that we can't react. 
you know. And I think it's important that really we let people know, turn off TV. I mean, you can get informed and turn it off. You can read and turn it. And, and so for people, because I have so many clients that are anxiety-ridden, that are so fearful. Of course, we have the preppers, and there's so much people, so many people that are, are just terrified and ruled by this fear. And that if you can just get them to turn off all the media and just enjoy their lives, enjoy the holidays, you know, and they can read. I mean, the thing about the paper before the 24-7 news was that you could put the paper down. You know, it only had an article or two, you know, and so people need to get control back of their lives and stop letting the media control them. And that's really one of the things that I want to recommend for people who are fear-based. It is amazing if you just turn it off. I turned it off a really long time ago, and I get my information from reading and then putting it away. Um, And if it starts to scare me when you live in fear, then you're going to make so many mistakes financially, emotionally, just every way, relationship-wise, you don't want to live your life in fear. And I know for you, Carl, that was one of the things that was your biggest thing you wanted to talk about was the fear of terrorism and how how it's not real. Well, terrorism is, is, is a threat. And we have to be vigilant. We have to have, uh, in my mind, we have to have a better strategy on dealing with them. But that's a separate issue from uh, how the American people react to terrorism. Uh, They are, uh, in my mind, being... uh, Given exagger- the threat is being exaggerated both both by the government and by the media, and I'm not sure uh, why. I mean, uh, it, it seems to me that that it's important for us to deal with this problem, but we don't want to. You know, people were talking yeah. last night on the, on the debate about being strong, about being tough. That's what uh, we got to do. This. I, you know what I would say? We've got to be smart. <laughs> the first right. thing to do is be smart. And that, if we are smart and we use our great ingenuity and our, what, our track record as a country, we'll deal with this. And right. it will be a blip uh, on the screen of American history. It, will, it won't it even, it will, it'll get a paragraph or two in a history book rather than <laughs> a full chapter as World War II gets, you know? I like that blip, a blip on the screen, a paragraph or two in history books. That's what we want it to be, and we can make it that. And you have let us know so much about how to enjoy our holidays. Thank you so much for being on, Carl. Well, it was my, my pleasure and my honor. I, I thank you very much, Ann. I, and you. I, I hope I was helpful to you. Oh, God, incredibly helpful. You have a great holiday, and thank you for honoring us today by being on. And everyone else out there, have a great holiday. We'll see you next week for our Christmas show, and just enjoy getting ready for the holidays. Live well. Thank you again for joining us. Living Well with Ann Beal airs live every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait to see you again next week. We'll be right back.